It's been good over the last several uh, weeks, months to just kind of go through this and be reminded of all the areas that even as a father who has kids that are older now and out of the home, all the places that I need shoring up just in my own life in reference to discipleship and those kinds of things. And over the last several weeks, we've covered a lot of things. Our priority as disciplers or as parents, and that simply is to be committed to the things that God commands us to be committed to. And obviously, first and foremost is to Him, be committed to Him and our relationship with Him, which then infiltrates every area of our life. Of course, our goal is simply to be faithful, faithful to Him as an instrument in His hands to allow or to uh, be that conduit, if you will, for God to accomplish all that He desires to accomplish in our own life as well as in the lives of those we have influence in. That doesn't negate the fact that there are a lot of challenges that we will have when we do that, and most of those challenges have to do with us individually because we still are prone to sin, to fulfill all those sad desires that we have that we should not have and things like that. And so those are challenges that we uh, can overcome by the grace of God through the submission to His Word and to the Spirit of God. And then, of course, there's all kinds of roles that we have when we come to discipleship, particularly in the home. Sometimes we're disciplinarians. Oftentimes we our teachers, as Ephesians 6 tells us to do, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we are to be encouragers, right? So that they will not lose heart. And that's important because life is full of failure. Life is full of disappointment, discouragement, things that cause us to uh, wonder if Sometimes, sadly, if God is even around, right? We're like the psalmist sometimes. Lord, where are you, you know, in this? And so we can be discouraged. Our kids can be discouraged, and we need to be an encouragement. Well, there's two additional roles that we want to talk about this morning. Probably the most important of all the roles are these last two. And the first one is us as evangelists. Evangelists. Classic passage in the scripture, Matthew 28, uh, oftentimes turned to when it's missions, conferences, or these kinds of things. Matthew 28 clearly tells us the priority that we ought to have as Christians, as Jesus was giving the commission to the disciples and saying, All authority has been given to me, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, what's that entail, right? It entails us teaching them to observe, verse 20, all that Jesus commanded, right? Teaching them to observe. So we teach, and we say you need to observe that, right? This is the role of us as evangelists. It's a crucial role, right? That's why we've talked about the gospel throughout this whole study, because the gospel is the thread that makes all of this work. God intends us to just be instruments in 
in the family and in our relationships in passing down the truth. Right? Giving the truth of of the Lord Jesus Christ from one generation to another generation to another generation. This is the this is really the essence of any goal or any I should say any role in the church even is the perpetuation of truth from one generation to another generation. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, you pass on what you know to faithful men who will be able to do it to others also. That's the idea. The trickle-down effect. We, we have a responsibility to be in that process because we're Christians. And so we're, we, we want to sharpen that focus, if you will, in, in, in just talking about these things this morning. And so there's some key thoughts that we want to keep in mind. And these are pulled from a book that Dr. MacArthur wrote years ago called Faith Works. I think the new title now is The Gospel According to the Apostles. Um, but it really, when, when we're sharing the gospel, we, we ought to keep these things in mind. And the first thing is this, do not abbreviate and do not dilute the gospel. Don't abbreviate or dilute the gospel. And I'll say it this way, do not purposefully abbreviate or dilute the gospel. Sometimes, even as a new believer, you may only know so much of the gospel, and so it's abbreviated simply by your own understanding, but that's not deliberate. That's not purposeful abbreviation. That's just because you haven't matured enough in your own faith to understand things or haven't read the Bible long enough to know all the realities of the gospel. But don't purposefully abbreviate or dilute the gospel. What do we mean by that? We just simply mean don't omit discussing even the difficult things of the gospel. Don't omit, don't omit talking about the attributes of God. Don't omit talking about the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what it means don't omit what Christ did in the resurrection, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the, the punishment that comes in eternity. Don't, don't omit forgiveness and grace and mercy and all these kinds of things that come. Because if we do that, then we have opened the door potentially to what is known today in theological realms as easy believism. People who believe in Jesus but don't know Jesus at all. Um, we want to make sure that when we share the gospel, those whom we're sharing the gospel with have an understanding at least at the best that we can of sin and the consequences of sin. If you ever have the opportunity to, to work or participate in children's ministry here at this church, you'll understand that it's very easy to get children to say, yeah, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to pray. I want to go to heaven. It's easy to do that. Uh, I dare say there's not a child who's ever refused when the question's asked, do you want to go to heaven? They'd say, yeah. Yes, I want to go to heaven. So it's easy to get them to pray some prayer and then assume 
in their own little minds that they are saved. Some of them may, in fact, God used that to save them, but oftentimes that's not the case. So it's easy to, especially when it comes to younger people, to get them to believe something. And so we don't want to do that. We want to take care with that. We want to be extremely careful not to uh, kind of, I guess, inoculate people against this idea of being committed to Jesus Christ rather than just simply saying they believe upon Jesus Christ. So we need to teach them about the holiness of God, which entails the idea of sin and the consequences of it. So that's the first thing. Secondly, secondly, we need to remember that the primary factor in anyone's coming to Christ is not solely how much doctrine they might know. Um, we want to be as clear as we can be with the gospel. We want to be as thorough as we can be with the gospel. But we cannot ever get to the place in our own minds and our own hearts where we believe that clarity is what saves people. Or that the amount of truth they've heard that we've shared is what saves them. We can never get that in our minds. The amount of truth someone knows or the amount of truth someone hears has little to do with whether they get saved or not. Anybody tell me why that is? Susan. Right. It's God doing the work in the heart, right? God's the one who saves. We're just instruments. We're just instruments. I think several years ago when we were teaching through 1 Corinthians, I said to us, we're, we're like the sewage pipe that goes from the bathroom out to the sewage area. We're just a conduit. We're, we're just a conduit. We, we just let the stuff flow through us. God's the one who does the rest. God's the one who makes it happen. And if the heart isn't prepared by God, it doesn't matter how much doctrine and truth somebody hears. It doesn't matter. I said to someone recently, who is the best gospel presenter that ever walked the face of the earth? Jesus Christ. Did everybody he ever talked to get saved? Why not? He's God. He's the best. He shared it as clear as anybody could ever be. He never had a word that was misplaced. Never had a doctrine that was confused. But not everybody got saved. Why? Because if God doesn't prepare the heart, they're not getting saved. Right? I mean, all we have to do is think, how much truth, how much doctrinal truth did the thief on the cross know? He, all he knew was, listen, buddy, we're guilty of our crime. This guy's innocent. He's here between. Don't you fear God? That's what he knew. You better fear God or something's going on and we're guilty of our crime. Jesus, will you, 
Will you help me? That's all he knew. So it's important for us that, that we remember that. That it's God that tills the heart. It's God that, that massages the heart. It's not us. It's not the information. It's God that does that. And it's important that we do that. But it's also important that we allow people to respond to whatever they understand in that process. In other words, we don't want to get to the point where we share something and somebody says, I want to believe. We go, wait a minute. You don't understand enough yet. You know, no way. It's not time for you to believe yet. You, you got you to hear a few more things about this doctrine and this doctrine. And listen, if we share the truth with somebody and they want to turn to Christ, don't stop the process. Don't stop the process. We don't know if that's God saving them or not. All we know is they want to they wanna believe. Yeah. Right, and that's right. That's the third thing we want to remember. Right, we want to remember that it's the Holy Spirit's job. It's God the Spirit's job, not our job as a presenter, not our job as a parent, not our job as a discipler to offer assurance. It's not our job to offer assurance. We don't get to do that. fact turn to Romans chapter 8 just kind of put some scripture references to these principles notice what Romans 8 says right this is the the great passage on uh, on assurance right Romans 8 1 there is no therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus right okay there you go that's the principle right you're in Christ you're truly in Christ there's no condemnation so so stop condemning yourself all the time you're 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 saved in Christ work on your sin issues yes but don't don't continue to believe I continue to be lost that's not the case Right, so we're in Christ, and notice verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's that self-indicting judgment, condemnation upon yourself. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ. So we don't have a spirit leading us in that direction. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons in which you cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's where assurance comes from, from the Spirit of God. Assurance of salvation is the Spirit's job, not ours. It's the Spirit of God that illumines the mind to understand the truth, as 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. And it's the Spirit's job then that strengthens us to obey the truth. And so the understanding of Scripture, the obedience to the Scripture is a means through which we are assured of our salvation. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, he said, you... You, however, Timothy, right, he talks about in the latter days, this is going to happen. People are going to fall away. They're going to 
hold to a form, form of godliness, but they deny its power. Paul says, but you, Timothy, you continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there's the issue, right? It's salvation through Christ, by faith in Christ, according to the scriptures, and the Spirit assures us that we are children of God through our understanding of scripture and our obedience to the truth. Right? And there is then a potential serious confusion that happens in the minds of people if we are the ones giving people assurance and not God. It's, it's a dangerous thing. I used to ask my own children when they were younger because they all professed to believe when they were young. And I used to ask them as they were growing up this question. What in your life right today convinces you that you know Jesus Christ? What about your life? What about your actions? What about how you carry your life, how you think, how you choose your friends, how you're living your life? What about it convinces you that you actually know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because you've, you've professed it, claimed it. So what is it about your life that convinces you that you actually know Jesus Christ? Because if you have the Spirit in you, He's helping you understand it. He's confirming to you, right? So ask that question. Or ask a question that's similar to that because I didn't want my kids to have this false assurance. I didn't want them to go around saying, well, yeah, years ago I prayed a prayer with my dad or mom or I went to church and therefore because of that I'm a Christian. Like my mother-in-law asked my wife when we were going to get married, what religion is he? My wife said, well, he's a Christian. She said, well, everybody's a Christian. What religion is he? See, that's, a, that's a false notion about what Christianity is. Well, notice, it, I don't know how many of you have MacArthur Study Bibles or if you've ever seen MacArthur Study Bible or whatever, but in, in that Bible was put a, a little page or a two-page thing on the characteristics of genuine saving faith. And it's a really helpful reminder for us in this whole idea of assurance and salvation because there's two categories that are listed there and they're in your notes, evidences that neither prove nor disprove someone's faith. What are those? Well, visible morality neither proves nor disproves someone's faith, right? There's a lot of people who are visibly morally decent people. In comparison to the debauchery around us, they're what some would say, well, I'm a good person, right? They haven't done all of these quote-unquote big sins. They're visibly moral, but that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove nor disprove whether they truly know Jesus Christ by faith. But also, intellectual knowledge doesn't. 
And intellectual knowledge doesn't prove it either. There's a lot of people who are very smart people intellectually who do not know Jesus Christ at all. Some who claim even to be saved, but they do not know Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, for even though they knew God, now that doesn't mean savingly, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They profess to be wise, but in reality they're just fools because they've exchanged the glory of God for that which is incorruptible or that which is corruptible. So they're intellectually knowledgeable of all kinds of things, even in religion. They have a lot of intellectual knowledge, but that doesn't prove they know God at all. And that leads to the third one on that list, religious involvement. There's a lot of people involved in religion. A lot of people involved with all kinds of religions. The Pharisees were a clear example of that. There was all kinds of religious practice that the Pharisees had. Matthew 25 says, and Jesus said, Woe to you, you hypocrites. You do all of these things, but you neglect these things, which shows your true heart. That's what he's saying. So religious involvement doesn't mean anything, nor does active ministry active ministry that frightening passage in matthew chapter 7 verse 21 and following frightening right but lord didn't we do these things in your name we did them in your name it reminds me of deuteronomy chapter 13 right a prophet coming along and saying hey i have a word from the lord and he actually does a sign we did it in your name. In the name of Jesus. You ever hear all the charlatans on TV say that? We rebuke Satan. In the name of Jesus. All this kind of nonsense. We said we did it. Jesus says, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. So active, being active like that means nothing. Even, get this, even conviction of sin is not proof that someone knows Jesus Christ. Paul was under arrest, standing before Felix, the governor. Paul preached the gospel. What did Felix say? Man, Paul, if I let you keep talking, even I might believe. There was a sense of conviction of sin in Felix. Sense the reality of his own life, his own guilt, and yet that didn't mean anything. There's a lot of people. You can talk to people with the gospel and they go, man, wow. Some people will even say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to hell. Right? It's conviction. They have conviction. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean they're saved. Even assurance can be fabricated. Matthew 23 is full of it with the Pharisees, they, they had a great assurance that they knew God. Remember Jesus even in John's gospel said to the Pharisees, look, you search the scriptures because you think that in them is salvation. In other words, you, you worship the, the page, you worship the scrolls that you read, but in them it speaks of me. You have this assurance that isn't assurance at all. 
And then, of course, many people tie their potential or professed salvation to some time in their life when they made a decision to believe or a decision they prayed a prayer, did something. So they say, well, I'm saved. My mother-in-law is like that. It's a sad reality because that's what they tie it to. It has nothing, no proof at all. But there are proofs. There are things that authenticate salvation and they're listed there for us, right? A love for God. And of course, a love for God is exercised through the practice of all of these other things that are there, right? The reason we do them is not simply because we're going to gain something. It's because we have a love for God because God has changed our heart. So you repent from your sin. Sin is no longer just free and easy. It's not easy believism that allows you to abuse grace and go on in your life of licentiousness because you know God is a forgiving God. No, there's repentance of sin. That means you, you, you recognize sin and turn from it. Turn from it. Genuine humility. A genuine humility in your life. David in Psalm 51 Against you and you only have I sinned. It was genuine humility before God. Why? Because there's a devotion to God's glory. Not a devotion to your own reputation. Not a devotion to your own self-preservation. Not a devotion to anything that you might get from somebody else. It's just simply a devotion to God's glory. Whatever it means to glorify God, I'll do it. It's like the words of Zacchaeus when Jesus came to his house that day, right? I'll do whatever I have to. I'll pay back four times what I took if that's what I need to do. Whatever, whatever you choose, Lord, I'm devoted to your glory. That's, that's all that matters. And then continual prayer. We'll talk about that in a minute. Love, like we have a love for God, therefore we have a selfless love for others. And of course, 1 John 2 says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So separation from the world. We have to be in this world. This is where God has us for a time. We are here sojourners, as Peter says in 1 Peter. We are here to present the gospel, to be living examples of the gospel, both in our life and our words and our deeds. Therefore, we live separate from the world. Not to live like the world. We're not to love the things of the world. And the outworking of that, of course, is spiritual growth in our life. Continual growing in Christ's likeness through, then the last one, obedient living. So those things are authentic. Those things are fruit. Those things show conversion. The first things don't necessarily show that. And that's why it says if list one is true in a person, but list two is not true, then you have, you have the reality of questioning whether they truly know Jesus Christ or not. But if list two is true, then everything listed in list one will be true also. So remember, we are... We are just that. We are just spreaders of the seed. We just want the seed to go out so that fruit will, God will massage it into the hearts of man and 
fruit will be born. And genuine fruit survives. It survives even in the worst of testing, even in the most severe testing. As Matthew 13, verse 8 says, the, the, the ground that was tilled, the, the, the soil was rich, the seed landed on it and grew and produced some 30, 60, 100 fold. It was profitable. All the other ground was just either the word was snatched away or it produced something quick that looked like life, like list one, but it wasn't life at all because there was no real fruit produced. In the end, it just faded or got choked out. So are there any questions, any comments on that? There's a whole list of readings there, just in a second, Susan. There's a whole list of recommended resources there. I would commend you to all of them because they're all uh, helpful for you in just those realities. Susan. true i mean they know when their life started to change they might know a date and time we that's not important the issue is there that this is when my life changed right it's like the it's like the uh, i always go back to john 9 one of my favorite passages i said right the blind guy talking to the pharisees and he says listen i i don't know all the, i'm paraphrasing i don't know all the theological realities of what you guys are talking about but all i know is this I was blind, I can see now, and Jesus did it. That's all I know. I mean, that's simplistic, but, but I think that's the reality, right? I, I, I don't know a date and time. It's like when I share my testimony. I don't know if God saved me in 1987 or 1988. It was, I, I know I was sitting there on my brother's living room floor, and it was New Year's Eve, I don't know if it was before midnight or after midnight, but it really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is God saved me because that's when my life changed. God changed me. So, you know, I don't know that that's important. No. No. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's what I mean by that. Even though... On the other side of it, like I was saying, some people tie their salvation to, well, on January 18th at, at 2 o'clock I prayed this prayer so I know I'm saved, and yet none of the fruit is in their life. Nick, you were going to say something? I felt mine. You felt yours? Well, I think that's a reality, too, for all of us, although we may not explain it that way or say that we felt something in that sense, but we knew there was something different. A change happened. Right. Exactly. Do you ever notice, by the way, have you ever looked at yourself in pictures prior to your salvation and then pictures of yourself after salvation? You ever look at that? you ever go that's just different that's not even me anymore you look at those old pictures and you see the person and yeah you, you can recognize yourself but there's something about it that's hard there's something about it that's 
that's just not you. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I look at pictures of, of people I know and I go, that's not even them. Chris. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, I was thinking about that that idea of repentance and changing direction, and and what what kind of effort is involved to the false professor and the and the genuine professor, right? Someone who says I've changed, and they're just trying to change their behavior by their own effort. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort in the end. You just can't do it, right? You just fail. And yet someone who's genuinely repentant, who understands their guilt, who's turned from the guilt of their sin, the, the sin them, it willingly turns from the sin itself. It's effort, but it's not as much effort. Because I'm not doing it to earn anything. I'm doing it because I'm saved. It's a whole different deal. And so that even the effort involved is a different thing. And you see that. You can just see that. And so that's a great point. That whole, that whole thing. Repentance that's genuine uh, brings change about. It just makes change happen. You will be, a, as you quoted, a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. I don't know what that new is going to look like in you, but the new has come. Yeah.
Yeah. And isn't it interesting even, right, when we think about salvation in reality, we don't give Christ anything. Right? He takes it. You're mine. We don't willingly come, none of us. None of us willingly come. He says, you're mine. And now deny yourself and follow me. Without his equipping, we wouldn't do that. We'd be the rich young ruler. We go, oh, no, I can't do that. I got too much. Uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever I hold so dear and near to my life. And that's what's so grieving to us, isn't it, as Christians, when we find ourselves holding so near and dear to things that matter not of this world? We're unwilling to easily relinquish. That, that grieves us, doesn't it? If it doesn't grieve you, you have to think. You have to think. It ought to grieve us. That may not mean at the moment we're, we're willing to forsake that, but it should grieve us. It grieve us. So we ought to be evangelists. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the whole purpose of us being just simply faithful instruments in the hands of God. With our life, with our words, with our deeds, whatever it is, the gospel is being seen or it ought to be being seen in us in everything we do. Regardless of how they're treating us, regardless of what people are doing, regardless of whether they're doing what we're asking or not, regardless of whether our kids are obeying or whether it's easy or hard or whatever, we're just instruments, instruments of the gospel, instruments to bring the gospel to bear, to bring the glory of God, what God deserves, glory in, in reconciling those to himself and glory in condemning those who reject him. So that's, that's that. Well, for that to be happening in us, we better be praying. That's the, that's the last thing. We better be prayer warriors. Spurgeon said, if any of you should ask me for the epitome of the Christian religion, I would say it in one word, prayer. Prayer. Colossians 4.2 and 12 says we're to be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 says we are to pray without ceasing. Constantly praying. Job 1.5 says we're to offer continually. Continually offering to the Lord. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, right? Be anxious for how much? Nothing. See, we all know it. Be anxious for nothing. And what's the next words? But pray, right? <laughs> Be anxious for nothing. Pray. Pray, right? And we know prayer doesn't control God. We know that. Prayer doesn't make God do things. Prayer is simply that, a de demonstration of our dependence and submission to Him, to His plans, His purposes. And it's obedience because we are commanded to pray. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Why? Because God has designed it such that through prayer, He accomplishes His divine will. Now, I don't know how that works, but I know that's how God's designed it. He's commanded us to pray and says, if you pray, I'll act. And yet we know that God's will is God's will. 
He's going to accomplish His will. But we pray. So if God desires to use us to accomplish His will, then what do we pray for? I don't, that's not as a question. I mean, what things are we to be praying for? Right? Number one, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Anybody in here who's ever parented children or discipled anyone knows you're going to need it. A lot of wisdom. James 1, verse 5 says, if you lack wisdom, what? I'm sorry? Yeah, see, go to God and pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God would grant you wisdom. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Anybody? Applied knowledge, yeah. Skillful living, right? Living out what the Word of God says. Go to Job chapter 1 for a moment. I'll get there in a second. Job 1. Notice what verse 5 says. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, talking about his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all because Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Therefore, Job did this continually. Job went and prayed continually. Didn't know what happened, didn't know what took place with all the feasting that would happen with his children, but Job knew that, man, I got to pray. I got to pray. I don't know what, what might have happened, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for wisdom. Secondly, we pray, as we've already talked, for salvation. We pray for salvation, that God would, in fact, save. I'll just read those few verses that we have listed. Proverbs Proverbs 8, go there first. Proverbs 8, just to kind of reinforce this idea. Proverbs 8, verse 17 Proverbs says, God speaking, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Sometimes we misquote that verse or misthink of that verse thinking that's a salvation verse in the sense that if somebody seeks God, they'll find him. That's true. And yet we also know that no one seeks after God. That's not really what the Proverbs talking about. It's talking about seeking God in, in prayer. I love those who love me. Those who love me, this is the idea, those who love me diligently seek me. They find me. Pray. God says pray. Romans chapter 10. 
verse 1. Paul's heart, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for salvation. Paul, of course, praying for the Jews, his own country people. I want them to be saved, right? That's our prayer. We want them to be saved. We seek the Lord continually so that others would be saved. And we know the means of that salvation is Jesus Christ through, through the truth of the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, however, continue, talking to Timothy, you, however, continue in things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from who you've learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Why? Why can they do that? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. Because it's God-breathed, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there's the reality. We pray for salvation, understanding that those who seek God will find Him. We desire salvation like knowing that God is the one who saves and knowing and he saves through the truth. So we pray for wisdom. We pray for salvation. Third, we pray for those whom we have influence on for their increased understanding and their knowledge of God. That they would comprehend what, what's being told them. That God would illumine, open their minds, that they would comprehend it. Hear it for what it is, not simply just babble, not simply just words. Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandment within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So we pray. We pray for those whom we have influence upon that God would open their hearts, help them understand what they're hearing, understand the truth. If you don't know how to pray, just go to the prayers of Scripture. Go to Paul's prayers in first in Philippians chapter one or Ephesians, I mean of Colossians chapter one or Ephesians chapter one. All those church letters that Paul wrote are great examples in there of his prayer for people, their salvation, the wisdom, the desire for their understanding. And then fourth, pray for protection. Pray for protection. Proverbs 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. 
So we pray for protection. Certainly physical protection. We'd love for no physical harm to come upon any of those we are discipling, particularly our children. Romans chapter 15, Paul asks for prayer for deliverance from the hands of those he's in custody with. So we pray for protection, but we also pray that they would grow in trusting God's sovereign purpose, even if they are going through difficult times, suffering times, things like that. Trust in the sovereign hand of God, that they will trust God in their own struggles in life. Pray that God would give them a sense of settledness under His protection. And of course, in protection, we pray that they would be guarded from the influences of the world, the influences of those around the world uh, who would seek their harm, even though they might come under the guise of seeking their best. Pray that they would be protected from the world, the influences of the world. Number five, pray for strength and comfort in their trials. We already mentioned that. That's just simply praying for endurance. God would grant them endurance. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. I had this thorn in the flesh. I entreated God three times and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You continue to endure. Trust God in it. Just because God didn't solve the thing the way you wanted it solved doesn't mean God isn't protecting you, caring for you, and causing you to learn in the enduring process. He gives you everything you need to endure. Trust Him in that. Number six, pray for wisdom in their decisions, both present decisions and future decisions, that God would grant them wisdom and understanding in those decisions. Certainly Paul asked for that of the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5. He prayed for that. So by your own example, by your own life, by your own understanding of life and how you make decisions, I pray that you are teaching them through your own example to be not reacting to situations, but to be cautiously making your decisions about life what you're doing. This is going to help them control their own desires, their own fleshly desires to run quickly. I was having a conversation with a young man this week about these very things, about how to think through that and what's wisdom going to do, how it's going to direct you. And then, of course, pray for their relationships. Number seven, pray for their relationships. We know 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Oftentimes our kids will say, well, I want to be the influence in the group. Well, bad company corrupts good morals. You don't have enough maturity yet to handle those kind of things. And then lastly, pray for their heart for ministry in the future. Pray for their heart for ministry in the future.
Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked. He's far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The faithful, fervent prayers of the righteous avails much, scriptures tell us. And so we need to be praying. Praying for encouragement, praying for strength, praying for wisdom. That they would trust God, not trust themselves. Any of you have good ideas that might help others in how you continually are reminding yourself to pray? Are there any ways you do that? Do you keep prayer journals or do you keep a prayer box or do you keep a list? I know when we were Saturday morning with the men's group and even on our Monday night men's group, when we talk about prayer, guys take out their phones and make lists. I know there's all kinds of tools that help us do that. Any, any of you got any ideas that might have been helpful for you? Nobody's praying? I'll be praying for you then. All right, so what's our reward? What's our reward for all this? Personal sanctification, that's first and foremost, personal sanctification. God's using those in our life in the process of our own sanctification. He's stretching us in ways we've never been stretched. Teaching us where we lack in our understanding of Scripture, where we don't trust Him as we ought, how we ought to be living more separate lives from the things of the world, how we ought to change and grow, all of those things growing us in our sanctification. The other reward is just this, divine satisfaction. Divine satisfaction. When we do what God wants, God's pleased. That's all that means. When we do what God has commanded us, God is pleased. He's pleased. And he uses all of that to change others. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? He uses us to help in his process of redemption. That's incredible. It's amazing. So as we said, I think at the beginning, right, your discipleship process is a life, your life on another life for a lifetime. And, uh, I pray God will give you the grace to endure it. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together. What a great privilege to just go over all of these truths that we've learned over the last several months. Lord, we know that you're faithful. We know that you will accomplish what you have set forth to accomplish, that your word never returns void. We pray that we would be just faithful in your hands to, to do what you have asked of us, that you would uh, be honored by us in it all and that you would be glorified in it all as we obey you. And so we thank you for our time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.